Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa. I'm your host, Andy. Last week, we looked at the rise and subsequent fall of the Confederation of Damat. Now, as Damat disintegrated into dozens of independent city-states, one city would rise from the chaos to not only renew, but surpass the glory of Damat. This is the story of Aksum, and its rise to power. Episode 14, Aksum's Humble Origins Sometime in the 3rd century AD, a small group of Egyptians were expecting a visit from a very important man. He was the prophet Mani, a Persian man who claimed to work miracles and share truths of the universe. He traveled to Egypt to meet some of his followers, who he would teach about many things, like metaphysics, how to live righteously, and other stuff you might expect from a prophet. But curiously, he also relates to them a lesson in geopolitics. He tells his followers that there are four great kingdoms of the world, kingdoms so wealthy and powerful that none can challenge them, except of course for each other. The first of these kingdoms is Mani's homeland, Persia. The second great kingdom is the Roman Empire, and the third is the kingdom of China. But the fourth great kingdom, and the topic of this podcast, is the Empire of Aksum. While Aksum today is far more obscure compared to the likes of Rome, Persia, and China, this is not true in its era. At the height of its power, Aksum was seen by the world as an equal to these kingdoms, to be just as respected, feared, and praised as the other great powers of its time. However, nobody ever starts at the top. And while Aksum of the 3rd century was a great power, our episode goes back to the year 400 BC, when Aksum was a mere small agrarian settlement under the rule of a much greater state. Aksum, like Rome, is the name of a city as well as an empire, and in 400 BC, it was nothing special. Aksum was just one of the dozens of semi-independent city-states that composed the Federation of Damat. The city, built in a valley between two large hills, was covered by significant forestation. Rather than resembling a city in the traditional sense, Aksum more resembled a large clearing in the woods, with a few small buildings in the center and teff fields stretching until they reached the tree line. Most of its residents were subsistence farmers, though the city was a minor stop in the crucial overland trade routes. The caravans that populated these trade routes were mostly not staffed by dedicated merchants, but instead by nomadic cattle herders. These pastoralists would drive their herds of cattle around the various grazing fields of the Ethiopian highlands, and would occasionally stop in a nearby city to either buy local goods to sell, or to sell local goods that they had procured elsewhere for a profit. Herdsmen coming from the south and west would sometimes bring valuable luxury goods, like ivory, ebony wood, and gold that they had bartered for in the Cushitic city-states to the south, but this was incredibly rare in Aksum. The forest surrounding Aksum didn't make the city an attractive grazing destination, and its small size made the city a mediocre market at best at which to buy or sell goods. Demot's capital, Yeha, not too far from Aksum, was an attractive grazing destination, and did have an enticing market to sell goods so it attracted far more of these pastoral merchants. Along the northern coasts, the incense cities of Kohaito grew wealthy from the exportation of the precious tree saps of frankincense and myrrh. However, no city in this period was grander than Matara. Located on the only road that connected Yeha and the incense cities of the coast, Matara grew incredibly wealthy off the trade that occurred between them. 
All the gold, ivory, and ebony that went north, as well as the frankincense and myrrh that went south, passed through Matara and was taxed along the way. Compared to these grand metropolises of trade and wealth, what was a small farming settlement like Aksum? Around 300 BC, though, this status quo finally fell apart. Yeha had been in a state of economic decline for the last few hundred years, and as a result, the power of the Demot Federation declined with it. The Federation system, in which independent city-states pledged their loyalty to Yeha, became outdated as Yeha became less economically important. Soon, the local rulers of the cities of Demot stopped paying taxes to Yeha altogether, and the government of Yeha was unable to force them to the table. Yeha was reduced to a minor, albeit religiously significant, city. The main culprits of this collapse, the incense-producing cities of the coast, would soon come to regret this decision, though. While withholding tax revenue was effective in boosting their coffers in the short term, the collapse of the government in Yeha that resulted from it would eventually come to cost them more in the long term. You see, incense is a fairly rare resource, but the main reason why frankincense and myrrh were so expensive was because of a strict practice of limiting exports. As every econ student knows, market value is determined by supply and demand. If you limit exports, the product becomes more scarce, and thus more valuable. The desire to increase the price of incense through a monopoly is what led many of these city-states to confederate with Saba and later Demot in the first place. But, it's an interesting contradiction, right? The kings of these city-states wanted to export at high prices, but they didn't want to pay taxes to the government that ensured those prices stay high. Additionally, withholding exports, well, reduces your exports, meaning that while each shipment of incense is more valuable, you don't get to export as much as you might want to. With the enforcement of the monopoly gone, the incense cities of East Africa began exporting incense in massive quantities, increasing their short-term profits, but killing the value of the good in the process. The decline in incense prices, as you might expect, collapsed the economies of the cities that relied on it. And if that wasn't bad enough, a bigger problem was brewing in the north. In 332 BC, the Macedonian king Alexander the Great conquered the lands of Egypt from its previous Persian rulers. After Alexander's death a decade later, one of his generals, Ptolemy, assumed control over Egypt and crowned himself pharaoh, beginning the Ptolemaic dynasty of Egypt. Now, Egypt was one of the largest consumers of incense, and also served as the gateway through which these incenses would be traded to the rest of the Mediterranean. For the last thousand or so years, Egyptian governments had been happy to let the incense come to them, and let the Ethiopian and Arabian merchants sell them at whatever price the merchants wanted. At first, this continued as normal, but one Ptolemaic pharaoh, named Ptolemy II, decided that he didn't want to do business this way anymore. He built a navy of hundreds of ships to patrol the Red Sea, where they would hunt pirates and provide safe passage to Ethiopian and Sabaean merchants. But, in exchange for this generous decision, he and not the merchants would set the price of goods, and of course, as the customer, he set them low. As the price of incense went into a freefall, so too went the economies of the incense cities. Kohaito, the most populous, powerful, and culturally influential of these incense cities, was among the hardest hit. The city saw its population dwindle during this period, declining from the undisputed center of civilization in East Africa into just another pretty big town. 
The only place hit harder than East African cities by this decline of the incense trade was Saba, across the Red Sea. Like East Africa, the Arabian kingdom of Saba relied on the incense trade to fuel its economy, and as this trade declined in value, the kingdom's economy went with it. Soon, under the weight of a devastating economic depression, the government of Saba became unable to pay for even its most basic functions. The kingdom fell once more into chaos, splintering into multiple kingdoms, with Saba's influence contained to just the capital city of Marib and its immediate surroundings. One famous quote, often attributed to Mark Twain, but probably never said by him, goes that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Well, just as the Federation of Demot began with a decline in incense prices and a political decline in Saba, the same process hundreds of years later is what kick-started the growth of Aksum. You see, Aksum did not rely on the harvesting or exportation of incense at all, as its economy was largely based on local subsistence agriculture. Other inland cities, like Yeha and Matara, while they didn't export incense themselves, had economically tied their fate to that of the coastal incense cities through the cultivation of strong trade and diplomatic ties. Aksum's previous biggest weakness, its economic isolation, was now its strength. Throughout the next centuries, while the rest of the Highlands region struggled economically, Aksum was flourishing. The city's population grew rapidly, and quickly ascended to become one of the largest in the region. By 100 BC, the growing population of Aksum had cut down most of the forests that surrounded it to make way for further expansion of farms, making way for plenty of grazing fields to attract pastoral herdsmen. These herdsmen brought with them the valuable goods that they carried throughout their journey, which they would buy and sell in the markets of Aksum, stimulating the economy. To further capitalize on its new status as a trade center, Aksum's landowning class began to move away from the growth of staple crops like teff, and instead pushed for the cultivation of more lucrative cash crops. The endless fields of teff around Aksum made way for orchards of Xylopia Ethiopica, or Ethiopian pepper. Ethiopian pepper is a type of evergreen tree that is indigenous to southern Ethiopia and the Congo Basin, and had to be imported to Aksum. The fruit of the Ethiopian pepper tree was used as a medical agent throughout the Indian Ocean, treating bronchitis and dysentery, and is highly valued as a culinary spice. The bark is also valued medicinally, used to treat rheumatism and nausea when combined with wine, while the tree's timber was highly prized in construction to make termite-proof buildings. Ethiopian pepper soon became one of the most valuable exports of the Ethiopian highlands. For the pastoral herdsmen, Aksum was no longer just a market to sell in or a place to graze your cows. It was an important destination to pick up the valuable good of Ethiopian pepper. Due to its rarity, Ethiopian pepper soon exceeded the price of incense and became the most valuable good in the region, a rise that Aksum was more than happy to profit off of. In addition to the city's economic rise, its position further inland was also advantageous for political reasons. You see, because of their coastal position, Cities like Adulis and Kohaito had grown increasingly politically intertwined with the Kingdom of Saba. The coastal cities of East Africa often held alliances or were ruled by families related by blood to the Malik of Saba. Now, back when Saba had been a stable and hegemonic power in the region, this diplomatic relationship was mutually beneficial. But with Saba's recent decline into renewed chaos and civil war, this alliance became more trouble than it was worth. 
Because of their alliance, Saba's enemies were now Kohaito and Adulis's enemies, and these cities were obliged to spend precious resources trying to militarily and economically aid their flailing Sabaean ally. Aksum, because of its position inland, was relatively unaffected by Sabaean affairs, and could therefore continue to grow peacefully while its rivals wasted resources on fruitless wars in Arabia. The city's economic growth in this era attracted migrants, and soon the city's population was growing just as fast as its economy. By 50 BC, Aksum had surpassed Yeha, Kohaito, Matara, and Adulis to become the largest and most important city in East Africa, and to the north, one final development was brewing that would catapult Aksum from a wealthy city-state to a great empire. In 32 BC, the queen of Ptolemaic Egypt, Cleopatra, yes, that one, had decided to back her lover Mark Antony in the Roman Civil War. Needless to say, she picked the wrong side and was defeated by the Roman armies of Augustus Caesar just two years later, and her kingdom was annexed by the Romans. In Cleopatra's place, the Roman emperor appointed a prefect to rule Egypt. This was an enormous boon to the cities of East Africa. The Ptolemaic kingdom of Egypt, long the naval hegemon of the Red Sea and the cause of the massive decline in incense prices, was now gone. Now that Egyptian ships were no longer patrolling the Red Sea and demanding low prices on East African goods, incense prices rose back to their previous heights. The Roman prefect of Egypt would try in 26 BC to re-establish dominance like the Ptolemies had, and sent an army to besiege the city of Merib. However, by the time they reached the walls of Merib, the city had already been decimated by disease and dehydration from their journey through the desert, and the siege failed in embarrassing fashion. The Romans would never again try to interfere in the Red Sea region, and were content to, like the Egyptian rulers before the Ptolemies, let the Arabs and the East African merchants set the prices on their valuable goods. And if this wasn't good enough, the Roman conquest of Egypt allowed the incense merchants to sell directly to the Romans instead of through a Ptolemaic middleman. Now, merchants could directly sell their goods to the markets of the Mediterranean. This was a great deal for the African and Arabian merchants. Not only is their biggest enemy gone, but it was replaced with a more passive and significantly wealthier new customer. Remember, though, that Aksum had grown so quickly specifically because it didn't traffic in the previously unprofitable incense trade. Now that that trade had recovered, Aksum was missing out on the new profits. The city of Adulis, once a flailing city that was on the brink of collapse from low incense prices, was now experiencing a renewed golden age. Throughout the times of economic hardship, its primary competitors, Kohaito and the Kingdom of Saba, had been devastated and nearly destroyed. Adulis now stood alone as the primary exporter of incense. In 50 AD, a new king had ascended to the throne of Aksum. His name was Zahakala, and he understood the power that trade played in the economy of the Red Sea. Something of a forward thinker, Zahakala knew that if Aksum didn't find a way to benefit from the rapidly growing incense trade, they would fall into obscurity like Yeha had in the past. With this in mind, he launched an attack on the city of Adulis bringing it under his command with little resistance. With this single move, Zahakala had secured Aksum as the world's most important exporter of incense. He also personally put in great effort to ensure that his kingdom would secure an advantageous position in global trade. In 90 AD, a new king had ascended to the throne of Aksum. Much like how English is the international language of business today, 
If you were in business in 90 AD, you better know how to speak Greek. Zahakala went out of his way to learn how to speak the Greek language. Whenever he met with Greek-speaking merchants, they were likely pretty surprised to hear the Aksumite king respond to them in perfect Greek. Little else is known about the rule of Zahakala or his successors, with most of the kings that succeeded him being entirely obscure in historical records besides their names. We do know, however, that between 90 and 200 AD, the remaining Onus cities of East Africa were subjugated by Aksum. When the Aksumites subjugated a city, they did not respect the autonomy of its previous rulers, instead choosing to rule in a direct manner. Taxation was not a friendly encouragement, but a necessity that would be punished if not paid. Rather than the old title of Mukarib, the Aksumite kings went by a different title, Negusa Nagast, Gaez for King of Kings. Aksum was clearly no longer just a city-state, but the capital of a fledgling kingdom. But there still existed a few thorns in Aksum's side, those being the kingdoms of southern Arabia. True, Aksum was now the leading power in the incense trade, but they were still ultimately at the mercy of global incense prices to continue to grow their wealth. If only they could monopolize the incense trade, the kings of Aksum could set the prices themselves by limiting exports. However, as long as the kingdoms of southern Arabia stayed independent, this ability remained out of reach. So, for the foreseeable future, Aksum's foreign policy will be focused on one goal, bring southern Arabia to heel. Join us next week as Aksum takes its first steps outside of East Africa and starts its journey to become an intercontinental empire. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then I'd encourage you to support the show. This can be done by a monetary donation to our Patreon, which can be found on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. By giving the show a review on iTunes, or by sharing the podcast to anyone who you think might be interested.